Hello friends, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 10 of So Poetry. Uh, this is going to be a really neat, extra special episode, um, because aside from being your podcast host on a monthly and occasionally bi-monthly basis, I also run Akinoga Press, which is a very, very small press uh, that is based in Baltimore, which is where I currently live, and I just released a chapbook, a new chapbook, uh, written by poet Tracy Diamond, who is, I think, my like second or third guest on the podcast. Um, the chapbook is titled To Tracy Like, To Like, Like, and the launch was July 12th, which, depending upon when I post this this weekend, was either like two days or three days ago. Um, and for the launch, uh, Tracy, and when Tracy and I were discussing what we wanted to do for the launch, uh, she had the amazing idea of having it be a panel discussion with uh, a handful of other poets, uh, all of whom write about the body in kind of varying degrees in different ways, um, because that's what a lot of what Tracy's chapbook is about, is is like the body and the exploration of, of the FUMA body in a given space and the exploration of the FUMA body just like internally dealing with like chronic pain. Um, and trauma and where that's where that's located and where that's held in the body um and it was an absolutely astounding night it was so amazing it was so many people came out to to hear the panel the 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 panelists the other panelists included uh sharia harris who was also a guest on the podcast uh mary adele who was a guest on the podcast um mandy may jane Ludy. Uh, and Tracy, of course, and it was just, it was an amazing night of insightfulness and openness and thought-provoking topics and discussions, and it was, it was more than I could have ever hoped that the event would be. Um, and I recorded it, uh, because the, as many of you know, the, one of the, I guess, kind of guiding ethos is, eth yeah, whatever, whatever the plural of ethos is, um, for this podcast is the idea that there are conversations that artists and specifically poets have um, that I think have merit in a, in a wider than more, in a uh, scale that is bigger than just the two people that are having that, that particular conversation. Um, and I can speak from personal experience that some of the most interesting and uh, long, well, the the most interesting conversations and the conversations that have stuck with me the longest, the, I guess that have had the most uh, perseverance internally, have been with other artists and specifically with other poets. Um, so I thought that it was important to to capture what to just capture the discussion and to, to save it in in the spirit of this is important for people to hear also in the spirit of there was a lot of people in Baltimore that couldn't make it out to uh, the launch and I didn't want them to miss out on you know on the total totality of the event um, so what follows is around an hour and 20 minutes or so of the discussion uh, followed by a uh, brief, a very brief reading, um, which is again awesome, 
because you get to hear the poets speak and talk about how they write about the body and then you get to hear some poems from them about the body um and it it puts things into greater sense of clarity and a greater sense of empathy and understanding and it was it's it's awesome um so with that said i'm gonna shut up now um i will probably cue the intro uh music whenever i get finished this spiel um and then you'll be treated to the uh the totality of the launch event for to tracy like to like like um i hope that you enjoy it it was i hope i hope that the listeners out there all over the world wherever you are whoever you are um can get as as much out of the recording and as much out of the discussion as uh everyone who is in the audience seemed to get out of it um yeah, so this is this is be episode ten. Um, I will talk to you all later. Hi everyone. Hi Michael. Um, thank y'all for coming out tonight. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael Zuloff. Um, I'm the founder of Aki Noga Press, which is the publisher of Tracy's new chapbook. Woo! Um, this is what we're here to celebrate tonight. Um, for future reference, uh, anybody who would like a copy after the, the discussion and the short reading, um, I will be somewhere in the back with them. Um, but before we begin, uh, I would like to express extreme amount of gratitude to Julia and Rita Reeds for letting us host here. The Red Bookstore and independent neighborhood bookstores, I think, are very important for communities. So after today, come back and buy every book. That's it. <laughs> um, I'd also like to thank the wonderful panelists that we have. Um, this is going to be an amazing night, amazing discussion. Uh, so to kick that off, I will introduce everyone, and then I will vanish, and it will just be that. <laughs> um, so, Mary Dell lives in downtown Frederick, Maryland, with two cats, a dog, and a partner. She's the founder of the Consent Collective, an organization with a mission to obliterate rape culture through open conversations surrounding sexuality, gender roles, and consent. Uh, her passions include poetry, sexual assault prevention, and donuts. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy Diamond co-curates Ink Press Productions. Uh, she is a 2016 Baker Award Baker Artist Award finalist, uh, the author of four chapbooks, most recently to Tracy Like to Like Like. Um, she holds an MFA in creative writing and publishing arts from the University of Baltimore, and she has two perfect cats. <laughs> Rhea Harris. One, Juju Word Woman. Two, Wild Creative Womb Bearer. Three, Fire Water Bringer. Four, Cloud Card Star Reader. Five, Writer. Five A, Poet. Five B, Playwright. Six, Performer. Eight, Writing Consultant and Educator. Ten, MFA Creative Writing and Publishing Arts. 11. Southern Black Girl. 12. All the magic a moment could hold mm. and left out with a bang. <laughs> Jane Lutie. 
and is the author of two poetry collections, Bravura Cruel, uh, 1913 Press from 2013, which won the 2011-1913 First Book Prize, and In One Form to Find Another, another Cleveland State University Center, our Poetry Center, 2017, selected as the winner of the 2016 CSU Open Book Prize. Uh, this most recent collection centers on female chronic pain and the body's response to trauma. Mandy May is a queer, chronically ill, Baltimore-based writer and designer, born and raised in Virginia. She believes in ghosts, magic, and the splendor of a body family. She earned her MFA in creative writing at, from the University of Baltimore, where she is currently earning her DS in information and interaction design. Mm -hmm. She has three cats. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for introducing everyone. Um, and also, if you need the volume up, let us know. Um, but thank you all for being here. Um, to Tracy, like, to like, like, took four years to write, even though it's like relatively short because it's six pages in Word, but you should still read it. <laughs> um, it took so long because I was wrestling with vulnerability and health and how they fit in poetry and how that fits in my life. And Michael was so patient with me every time I was like, hold on, hold on, I'm not done, let me edit some more. Um, so I really wanted to have like a safe, open discussion for the release. And I think it's so important for all of us um, especially as women to like take up space in our narrative. So that's why I also wanted to have this discussion to not just read our poetry and talk about poetry, but talk about the body and where everything fits, um, where it all intersects and where we also diverge. Um, so we'll, everyone sent in a question. It was really collaborative. So this is like a whole group effort. Um, after we go into the questions or discuss, um, everyone will read a poem or two, and then if you guys have any questions, we can answer them. Um, and since I segue, as well as Michelle Wolf, we'll just jump right in. <laughs> uh, so from Kesha to Janelle Monet to Sylvia Plath, and to most recently Ape Shit by Beyonce and Jay-Z, um, I'm always thinking about the canon and who decides what is culture, culturally relevant. And everyone up here is a teacher or educator in some way, in addition to being a writer. So I wanted to know from everyone, uh, how do you see your role in the cultural conversation? Who wants to start? Off. Anyone can start. <laughs> okay, I'll kick it off. I, um, I teach writing composition um, that deals a lot with um, learning writers kind of navigating their way when it comes to communicating. Um, and often the people that they see um, and want to model are from the canon. And um, I try to make my uh, classroom and learning space a space where transfer is really important and so I try to have each learning writer see themselves as a writer first to identify themselves as a writer and to think about their relationship with writing and once that happens I see them looking outside the canon because they're looking at themselves as writer and that validates so many other voices as writers as well 
um, the readings that I bring in to the classroom, um, I'm, and let me say this, I'm lucky to have uh, other people who are um, coworkers of mine and other educators who always bring um, people who are not in canon into the classroom, not in canon into the classroom. So Anthony Mall and I taught together at UB and I've gotten a lot of great readings from him as well. We share readings that talk about people outside of the canon. So um, there's a, uh, an essay I love using, um, an article um, that Zadie Smith did when she interviewed Jay-Z, right? And so talking, breaking this down as a writer, what are the writing elements of this? But then it brings into um, the minds of the, learn of the learning writers like, oh my God, this is great writing, right? Um, I am not in the space technically where I'm, you know, um, I think actively combating that canon head on. But I think that the ways um, that I create a learning space and I encourage writers to see them, uh, learning writers to see themselves as writers and communicators, I think challenges the canon. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, but yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I don't teach writing. Um, I do work in an educational capacity, uh, but I teach computer skills. Um, and a learning center, um, which I think is, it's not dealing with the canon necessarily in any way, um, but it is very much what I see my role as um, not only teaching computer skills and working with people on a one-on-one -on -one tutoring basis and workshop basis um, and promoting those services. It's much more about normalization of asking for help um, which I think is very important in breaking down those stigmas. Um, and so that is what I see. And I don't think that that's necessarily supported by the canon. So um, <laughs> that's what I can do. <laughs> I mean, but isn't that so helpful? Because a lot of the thing I have to break down in classrooms is, you know, the preconceived notions of what a writer is and who this person can be. Mm. And so they think, oh, well, I've got to go like out in the cabin and, you know, put my thoughts on paper <laughs> for like 25 days and I have to buy a typewriter and I have to like find people at Starbucks for space to write. And I'm like, no, you wrote a Facebook status. Congratulations. You're a communicator. Now let's hone these skills and what you're trying to say. So I feel like even that help seeking behavior that you, you know, you may not be teaching writing, but you're teaching people to be a part of the collaborative yeah. experience that yeah. writing is. And the more the more I think that we do that and break down these myths of what writers are, then it gives us an opportunity to expand the canon and to say like these voices are also valid and important. So I feel like that's important, maybe. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Mine goes in kind of a totally different direction, but I'm a dialogue facilitator and mm. I mainly work with college students um, and we talk about consent, we talk about sexual assault prevention, we talk about problematic gender roles, um, the beauty myths and everything, and one of the one of our um, one of our main talks is sexualization and how women are sexualized in the media. And we talk a lot about uh, music, mm -hmm. and and so for me, I my ears are constantly turned on to these new artists or these artists developing kind of new invigorating work, but also listening to the language and very specifically the semantics of it and how. You know, because we always have a conversation about the new artists and what the song is and what, and we dissect that and what they're saying that could potentially be damaging to 
um, how we view women, how we view men, how we view gender, and um, you know, as a collective culture. So that's kind of where I'm coming at <coughs> from the canon is looking at it as a popular culture and how it can be damaging. So unfortunately, I don't really enjoy music anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, um, building on what you just said there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not from these parts. Right. <laughs> I'm English, which um, is the, um, I guess, the vanguard of where um, canonical practices were forged, which um, in itself um, is very problematic for me. I think about my own education, I think about who taught me, and, um, and how proud these mostly men were about their particular heritage and where they were taught. It was Oxford and Cambridge. It was. Mm -hmm. Mm. And um, and I think about my syllabi that I was that I was exposed to, and I think about how I was encouraged and who encouraged me, mm. and I think about my first few years of teaching and who I taught, and how there was a um, I felt very grateful for um, something being bestowed upon me, and I was mm. permitted to be mm. in this particular environment and then um, transmit what mm. I had been um, again lucky to because I'm working class. And, um, and I was, I remember being ushered into this world that I felt grateful to be in. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I've been teaching for nearly 20 years now. And um, I think as far as you know, what my role is in terms of, you know, in answer to the question, um, I'm also fortunate to have taught in different countries. Mm -hmm. And um, had a lot of, um, you know, quite um, jarring experiences in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I, what I can say is, there's one thing I do that my professors didn't do, which is ask, who am I teaching? Mm -hmm. I don't think they ever asked that because they were never urged to, because they didn't need to, mm -hmm. because that was, they were responding to the canon. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's all I do. I mean, every, every class I learn something different. I just moved to Baltimore. This is a very different teaching experience for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think, who am I teaching? What do they listen to? What do they read? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, so um, I found myself to be more of an adaptive teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, you know what? 20 years ago, I was teaching very canonical, canonical British stuff. Yeah. Of course I was, because I was there. Yeah. <laughs> and, I was yeah. Very, and I was also uh, very indoctrinated by what I just talked about. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so that's what I would say. I'd say that I... I I like to know who I'm teaching to, mm -hmm. and then it's a, a more of a um, collaborative. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah. but that feedback is there. Um, well, and speaking of like how we're supposed to be or what we see, um, we exist in a culture that both pressures us to have perfect bodies while also loving our bodies unconditionally. So how does this conflict appear or exist in your writing, if at all? Expressions are really good answers. I can go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so so I found that um, I like the work that you both are doing when it comes to talking about your body. 
um, and that being a part of your work. I've done that in ways um, that I am not yet as vulnerable and ready to like, here's my talk about the things that are wrong with my body um, from an internal standpoint. Um, but from an external standpoint, um, my body and its interaction with other bodies in public space um, is a lot of my work um, in small ways and in large ways. Um, and I think a part of that comes from growing up uh, in Deep South and um, recognizing that your body um, is a political space. And so rather than it being like perfect or loving it, um, I've always been very aware of it. Um, and I have to say that I have, have focused most of my life and my work of being talking about the awareness, talking about how other people are aware of it, and not really focusing on if it's pretty or nah. <laughs> it's more been like, you know, I am aware of my body, other people are aware of my body, what does this mean to the safety of my body? Mm. Um, and the interactions I am supposed to have or not. Um, I think that there's a lot of work and writing that I've done it doesn't necessarily, I don't pay attention to um, my body, I think because I've had a lot of attention, negative attention about the way my body has looked at various phases. And so I don't really talk about it in my work yet, I guess. It's a good place for it to be. Um, yeah, I'm kind of parsing this out in my mind as we are talking. Um, but yeah, I guess that's what that means to me. Does that make sense? It does. Um, so like it sometimes with like what I'm writing, I feel like I'm revealing a lot. Um, and like how I feel about how I'm supposed to feel about my body, but I kind of tackle it sort of sideways because I'm really interesting and like those messages we're always getting and it's usually like based in marketing products to us. So I like take that language of like how how you're supposed to be feeling is portrayed like for example to Tracy like to like like opens up um looking at a Zoloft commercial like those mm -hmm. bouncy blobs from like the 2000s mm -hmm. um and then I wrap it around um how I'm feeling so mm -hmm. it's I haven't figured out like the like un unconditional love thing at all, but I definitely see like a lot of, feel a lot of tension. Yeah. I was finally diagnosed in my 20s with a condition called vaginismus, which basically means the muscles of my pelvic floor would tighten anytime um, penetration was happening or going to happen. And that was very much around the time that I kind of like shifted from journaling into writing poems. So for me, it kind of like, this is a much more, I guess, personal aim, but it like was a therapy in a lot of ways because I was like talking and dissecting and figuring out what that actually meant for me because there was no information. Like any gynecologist didn't know what was happening to me. I felt very like, um, 
both dissect, like kind of under a microscope, but also not at all because people are just like, I don't know what's wrong. Go to this person. And I was just being passed along. Um, so for me, writing very much let me kind of be like, what is my body? <laughs> and I think that now, like, I might be moving out of it, but for the time that I published my book, it was very much about my body and other people's bodies and like getting to be sensual about bodies because I also was raised in a very strict Catholic household which I think in turn the vaginismus probably happened <laughs> so I never really got to talk about bodies and that's how it kind of exists in my writing now. Um, I think I write about the body a lot in a pretty head-on sort of way. Um, I've really embraced it um, as a central topic of the things I write about, um, starting in both poetry, but even more so in prose. Um, and in that way, you, I get to like really dig in and like get the research on. Because um, that's one of the ways that I process things ab about my life and understanding and sort of coping with the fact that things are never going to get better. Um, on a multi-front attack, assault. Um, so, I mean, I've, I only really started writing about the body as much as I do in like the last three or four years. And that was very much in response to a decade of my life in which I wasn't really granted, you know, the authority necessarily over my own body and how I process things and so it was sort of an unraveling after that when I moved to Baltimore um, to do the MFA program and to write um, and explore these things um, and so since being diagnosed with endometriosis last October that really just put a lot of old poems into context because um, it was already there and I was already writing about it I just didn't have the vocabulary and the knowledge to make sense of it and so writing has really allowed me to make sense of not just physical um, things going on in the body but very much mental health um, and it's a vehicle in terms of normalizing and destigmatizing conversations about mental health and women's physical health and um, I'm working on a, a large, you know, farther reaching piece about bipolar disorder, endometriosis, and hysteria. Mm. So, <laughs> wow. It's my favorite yeah, thing to write about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, in response to everything, um, I mean, I, I started writing about um, the body in pain or the body in response to trauma. Um, after a number of incidents in, in my own body, but also reflecting on what it means to be an aging woman and how um, the, I think the, you know, the tension between, I think what, what you touch on in the question, between celebrating and um, saying fuck you to what you're supposed to look like in conjunction with relentless images of youth and how you're supposed to um, maintain it. And um, I am pretty sure even five years ago I didn't observe that tension, but now I do. 
And then I have that worry about, is it vanity? Is it my fear of mortality? Mm. Is it my, um, um, which I hope I resist, but is it, I, I'm not attracted to the opposite sex anymore? You know, all those things that, that I, um, I think, um, resist um, having. So, and then, and then I had a, a number of very um, indefinable medical issues that were terrifying. And my body was doing things to me that had never, never occurred before. And so I couldn't quite um, um, correlate that with aging or with um, how I was supposed to know my body and what it was gonna be doing. So um, that all sort of coalesced in, in thinking about um, how women particularly how they hold pain in their bodies and which particular organs and areas of the body in which they hold that pain. Mm. And, um, and then just went down a rabbit hole of research and realizing that this is a just an intensely um, compelling subject, how we, um, how we memorialize our pain in our bodies. So, you know, that's what I would say. Yeah, and I guess sort of getting more into how that is memorialized or um, how trauma manifests. The next question, um, what some ways you've noticed life experience have lived or manifested in your body long after the moment has occurred? How have these experiences impacted roles and relationships you have with others? You don't have to answer the whole question. You can answer <laughs> however you want. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> uh, chronic pain. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I feel, I mean, I can definitely feel the body um, holds on to trauma physically, um, emotionally, mentally. Um, so the answer is yes. Um, yes, it does. Um, I have certain places in my body that particularly hurt. Um, some are, you know, you can tie them clinically to something, but even that is, it really doesn't, the pain associated with endometriosis doesn't make sense, it's everywhere. Um, and it's not necessarily tied to the severity of your disease, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but no, I mean, I hold tension in places in my body, how that has affected relationships. Um, I mean, sometimes the end of relationships that have been affected by your trauma and pain can be a relief. Um, and so <laughs> that, that I'm gonna, I'm just gonna rest on that one. <laughs> I mean, you know, to go back, vaginismus literally is a phantom, like not a phantom, but it's just existing because of anxiety that I packed in there my entire life. So that kind of pain just exists I, in every interaction I, I really have in a lot of ways, particularly in intimate partnerships. I, it's there all the time. And now I'm kind of forgetting where I'm going with this. <laughs> that <laughs> happened that, to me too. Yeah. <laughs> just that it's there. Like I, I um, there was no physical cause that made this happen. It was all from constantly being told growing up that being sexual was not okay. So for me, it's uh, gonna take probably forever and plus that to actually undo. I don't think it'll ever com like completely unravel. Cause I feel at any time I interact with my body, you know, my vagina, so. 
That's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, I have a plethora of body issues, um, that most of them do stem from some level of emotional impact. Um, so, um, the one I think about most often, uh, maybe not most often, but the one that I think about that's kind of a sleeper, um, when I was an undergrad, um, I was having some issues and we decided to do some MRI. I've always had issues. I've got a lot of phantom things um, going on with my body. But with, in one of the MRIs for something completely different, they found that I have a, um, a softball size node or nodule on my liver. Um, and it's a whole extra part of the liver. It's just not even supposed to be there and it's huge. Mm. So they were like, oh, well, you got a new hunk of liver. We don't know what's <laughs> up with that. Um, but through some reading and just kind of my own like research, realizing that different body organs process different things, um, emotions, and that's your anger organ. And I had a lot to be angry about as a kid, but I never had the space to actually, um, coming from a highly religious background and, and pretty thick, I never had a strict, I never had a place to perform or associate with that anger. And so the way I've just rationalized it is my body just ate it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so now I've got a whole extra piece of anger so that's just happening, right? Yeah. Um, um, and so recently, not that any of the other body issues I have, I have IBS, which is tied to emotions and stress, um, acid reflux, asthma, and asthma having no real trigger except for when you get stressed out, you can't breathe. So there's that. <laughs> um, a lot of these things just come from having a lot of stress and being raised in an environment where you didn't quite know what was going to happen. And so you're always on edge. Um, and so my body is kind of conditioned to see that as a normal. And so I kind of create those spaces. Um, subconsciously of just having so much shit to do um, that I am I am in a space where I am running and doing and that is my normal and it feels it feels weird to let my body rest um, so that definitely impacts relationships mm -hmm. because um, there are many people in this room who I love um, but have like I probably this first time I've seen you in like months <laughs> right um, and it's this realization that my body is used to running on a certain level of stress and anxiety hormones maybe I don't know mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it it keeps me running and keeps me going and not necessarily resting and giving what it the body what it needs do you it find what it needs. interacting with people like sometimes well I mean I know mm -hmm. interacting with people will affect your body and your person all the time yeah but is that why sometimes you have to take a step back or yeah and on top of all of this I also have in some way developed an anxiety um, with groups and with being out in space. I think some of it does come from being, coming from Deep South, which is a slower atmosphere, and then coming to Baltimore and East Coast, um, where there's just so many people and every time you step outside, it's a thing that I knew in the South, right? You know, you know where to be, where not to be, 
and I think it's just maybe this is my that was a natural environment for me so it was this level of knowing that existed but in coming to Baltimore where there is so much that is unknown and so much that changes so quickly that it's just very stimulating. It's stimulating and also can be overwhelming in a way of like, do I want to deal with all of these things and my body and this, or do I just want to deal with this list of things that are known? Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I don't think it's an excuse, but it's definitely something that I am coming to understand more and more about myself and body and relationship and how these things manifest. Um, yeah, yeah, right, fair, right. 100%. And so it's easy for me to have relationships with people where I can just be quiet or I cannot see you for months and then we still pick up. Thank you, everyone, for that. <laughs> right? Because sometimes I do need to. And then oftentimes my body communicates and he says, we had enough. You in danger, girl. We done. So, <laughs> and so it's having to listen to my body. Mm-hmm even in the in the way it's sending messages to me or it's existed in all this craziness mm-hmm. that is living. So anyway, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, like, a level of stress that comes with, like, everything in your body, like, going wrong and, like, knowing that there's going to be some sort of pain happening while you're out there interacting. Because, um, like, I was officially diagnosed with endometriosis in April, um, because technically they can only diagnose it once they go in, like there's no medical imaging for it. They ju- the doctors, until they decide you're doing poorly enough for surgery, they're just kind of like- Or they believe you. Or, or they believe you, because that <laughs> is like a decade long thing of me, like kind of similar to Mandy, like going to the doctor, saying how much pain I was in, and then them just saying, like, take Advil, um, which obviously I know what Advil is. <laughs> um, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. But there was um, maybe to get into, like, how I've thought about how it, like, affects my relationships. Mm-hmm. I um, was sort of turned on to the idea of how, like, trauma is held in your body after Um, reading Abby Norman's Ask Me About My Uterus, Mm -hmm. which is a really fantastic book. Mm -hmm. Um, And Lynn Price is a um, dancer, writer, consultant. consultant. Um, They consult in somatic experiencing, which is a type of therapy that helps you, like, get into the root of your trauma that may be causing you pain. Mm -hmm. So... I've only done one, um, like one appointment, but the way they like helped me think about how I'm interacting and what I've experienced and how I can be holding that in my body is something that I just want to like go into more and I think could be really helpful for lots of people. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. No, I think I think so too. I think that's um, that's what I, I did um, tentative work on um, with the last book I wrote and um, I think firstly um, going back to the Advil story um, the there is a really um, intensely galling um, situation 
that exists in the um, misdiagnosis or unrecognizing of female pain. Yeah. That um, that is, yeah, there, there really is, there really is. So um, I think I began there and um, being um, ritually turned away from medical professionals, mm-hmm. saying that I didn't know my own pain. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, then, and then all you need to do is a simple internet search to find out who is, who is disbelieved and who isn't. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that, was, that was where I, um, you know, the kind of um, fuel to the fire really began. But, but in terms of um, going back about you know, the, the liver being the seat of anger, and how I think I also resist that idea that firstly we don't know our own bodies and secondly that right. there is some kind of um, yes. simple association that people um, exactly yeah. exactly um, I mean I'm a sexual assault survivor multiply and um, and I'm very well aware of what my body has done in response mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. very, it's very clear to me but it still surprises me mm-hmm. I mean a couple of a few years ago I had um, an undiagnosed pain down the right hand side of my body which was in a very I thought um, very dangerous place and so I went on this sort of internet spiral and diagnosed myself and got no help from doctors and then got a conspiracy theory going in my own head and, mm-hmm. and it was this very very um, self-destructive spiral of behavior and thought processes um, but I think um, at my very seat I think I knew what was going on that periodically my body will remind me that something happened. Mm. And that may be to do with either a relationship I'm in, or a relationship that is ending, or a specific transition in my life, and my body will remind me, you, you're, you're stressed now. Remember that time when you were really stressed? And it, and it, and it will um, center that stress. But I haven't quite engaged with it properly. Yeah. But the older I get, the more I realize that um, this is this vast network of sort of communicative messages. And, um, and then I did a lot of research, whether or not it's interesting, um, where, you know, where specifically women hold um, the pain of sexual trauma, or um, that which is repressed. And it's often in the reproductive organs. It's often in the area of the pelvis. It's, um, and again, I don't want to go too much into it, but it speaks to what everyone I think is saying here about Content. It is. Yeah, it is. It's a, like a revisiting, but the but the body's better than us. You know, yeah. Able, yeah, it is though. Mm-hmm. And and it's taking the time then to be like, why are you reminding me, body? Yeah. Like, what yeah. do I need to do to address this and to hopefully prevent it from happening again? Or then there's yeah. also that odd space of like, of not wanting to be reminded, but just having, I don't know, the full scope of the experience, so that you can be more empathetic and I don't know. Better to yourself. No, no. Empathy. Yeah, and better to yourself. I think yeah. that it's, it's really interesting thinking about the first question and how um, the, the messages we get about the body are so topical and I think kind of cheating of the body and that they don't, it's just all in the physical appearance and none of the intelligent design of the body, right? Um, and not intelligent design and trying to bring any religious mindset into it but just thinking about how your body continues to breathe when you forget to even like what's my name you know what I'm saying like you know the things that the body does and the way it communicates with us and I think it's easy to see the body as just a thing to make a certain size or put certain clothes on and eat within whatever fad is happening um 
Right. To like control it and not see it as a partner. Yeah. Like my body is the whole way I'm able to sit here and talk to you guys. I'm able to experience a lot of things. And we don't think about, I, I don't think about or have not, I've been forced to think about my body as a partner in living as opposed to um, just a thing to put clothes on, you know, or, or to to use as, what am I trying to say? How am I trying to get this out? A tool for acceptance. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> for acceptance yeah. and maneuvering in space, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, cheating. Having a, a brown woman body, a lot of focus for me historically has been placed on survival and making sure I'm in a space that is a level of safe, um, trying to combat or defend my body and its existence in the spaces that it finds itself in or that it deserves to be in or whatever, and um, not paying attention to what that kind of what that kind of interplay does to the actual body. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, body's important. It's commu- going to communicate to you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> not okay, but yeah, because how do we make it better? Which yeah. is true. Actually, like the next question. Solution. This is the laughter. Because <laughs> um, there should be space for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what? And I'm going to combine like the last two questions because um, they're very related. Like, what measures have you taken to try and reduce the trauma impact on your body? Any practices or self-care routines to share? And, like, how do you create space for relief and laughter, like, in your life and in your work? I'm going to jump in if you don't mind. So I got a bit of really good advice. Um that really reminded me of the things that I have to do for my body and for myself. I am not a rise and grinder. I'm a rise and charger. So I got to get up and then I have to like, how do I feel about things? (laughs) I'm going to have some tea and I'm going to stretch and I'm going to do all these things because I'm not really good at rising and grinding um, because my body is, my body's just not built that way. (laughs) Or maybe it is built that way and we need to like relax a little bit. Um, I'm a big proponent of um, self-care I think is great and Mary and I have done work on this um, together self-care is fantastic and it's something that a lot of people are learning to do and I think that's really good but I think the most important thing is to cultivate a knowing of yourself so that you get self-care that's good for you so donuts may not be great for you right you might need to take baths or be around water or whatever else Um, and for me it is taking quiet moments um, to talk to myself at the beginning of the day. It might sound crazy. No, it's fine, whatever, that. I'll go with it. Yeah. Um, uh, baths are really important to me, and water is really important mm-hmm. to me. And also understanding the link between my body and my mind um, is really a big part of my, um, my self-care. Um, I like chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> That's really important to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then having time to recharge. Um, I need a lot of recharge time lately. Um, did that answer that question? Yeah. What's the other part of it? I'm good. It's like finding relief in laughter, but that's... Yeah. 
Yeah. I, 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 one of the many reasons I, I, um, I'm here is because I thought I might get some tips from people. <laughs> <laughs> I no, I genuinely do everything wrong. I drink way too much. I don't sleep well. Um, I've, I've sort of I've gone on fine with that. Um, I don't know. I genuinely, I've, that, that's the one, the one question or the, those two questions that I probably couldn't respond to um, cogently because I genuinely don't help myself very much. I genuinely don't. I just mm-hmm. genuinely don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very. The, the one thing I'm conscious of is that I could be doing better. So I, 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 I don't. I don't um, know what mm-hmm. I like. I probably water might help. Um, <laughs> yoga might help. Meditation might help. Um, better sleep might help. Better food might help. <laughs> I know it all could help, but I don't do anything specifically. So, um, but I, 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 I sort of float along, assuming that I'm going to find one thing, which is probably the problem. Right. What do you really like to do? Drink. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Of course. Of course. Like, no, it's like, no, but in truth, laughter is with friends and with yeah. Drinking. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but, I, but I'm very, I, I have self-destructive tendencies. Fair. So a lot of it is, um, it's not necessarily finding alternative things. It's about mm-hmm. trying to curb the things that I do do um, oh, I not too much. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I am actually not one of those people who can say, um, this is my process in order to feel better. It's more a case of um, restricting what I do that is damaging. So uh, that's a bit boring. No, bit but boring. also those things yeah. change. It changes and shifts with who you are and where you are and what you need to do. So into context. Yeah. You're only one. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I don't drink too much. <laughs> well, like, I can just be, re- I can, like, be really intense and, like, that can get destructive. So, like, the thing that I, like, have found um, really helps is, like, practicing circus arts. Um, which yeah, is, yeah, right? That's yeah. so awesome. Um, and Michael the actually, yeah, awesome. shout out to In the Dark Circus Arts, um, yeah. which Michael actually told me about them. But it's, so it's, like, doing Cirque du Soleil for, like, someone who doesn't want to be in Cirque du Soleil, but they just want to, like, <laughs> dance and climb and spin um, and it takes like a lot of focus and a lot of practice and it's like really painful. Mm. Um, so I think I can like channel all of that intensity into the circus stuff and like I don't get upset that I'm like covered in bruises or like <coughs> weird like marks. marks on my wrist from practicing on like straps or lira because I'm just like well I'm doing something that like really brings me joy mm-hmm. well and fitness is so confining I feel like particularly for female identifying femme identifying people because it's like it looks very particularly like running or um doing very small weights I'm yeah. sorry Sharia. or I don't know there's lots of examples but I feel like the Cirque du Soleil stuff is just such an amount it's just such a beautiful, different, unique way to move your body that's both healthy but also so expressive and artistic that I'm always so inspired by your... I mean, I was so inspired that I tried it, and I well, loved it. I loved it. But, um, you know, I didn't keep it up. But anyway, <laughs> I just, like, I find, for me, my, my most healing thing that I've done for myself, and it's been really proud, is um, I started listening to different podcasts that were termed as body positive but in a very radical kind of more about the 
um, how oppression works and how, you know, diet industry is used to oppress people and to, you know, following this, like, I need to buy this to look like this. And anyway, as soon as I started listening to these podcasts and learning more and more about how damaging that is, and one of the tips they gave me uh, or they give people is to... I'm obsessed with Instagram. I just, like, there's no fighting it. Instagram is my... I just will be on it forever, and I love it. So what I did is they were like, follow... Don't follow Fitzbo. If mm-hmm. you if you can avoid Fitzbo, avoid Fitzbo. And, and by Fitzbo, I mean, like, the... Does everyone know? Okay. Um, and st- instead, start following, like, body diversity, different colors, different sizes, and, like, people who are super body positive and just, like, totally revamping my Instagram and seeing all these positive images and messages about how you can exist in your body and how you can be healthy without running anything, walking anywhere. Like, it it changed my whole life because I just was very much raised to think that I needed to go on a two-mile run every day and Mm -hmm. eat kale all the time. Mm -hmm. And now I eat donuts way more than I should. I mean, honestly, like, (laughs) I eat a little too many donuts every week, but that's okay. (laughs) So that was a very healing process for me, this curation. I want to be... I want to be you guys, yeah. but I'm very so much more you. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, in terms of, I mean, I know the things that I need to be doing and should be doing, but in the process of trying to listen to my body, my body is usually won't allow me to do much um, because, in addition to the endometriosis, and you know that's physical but the bipolar disorder that's an extra fun added element and <laughs> and I'm diabetic throw that into the mix mm-hmm. um, so there's a lot of my body is tired and it's mm. expensive yeah. <laughs> this is an expensive body to keep up um, and I'm not the best at self-care I like baths um, but they turn into a coping mechanism same with naps like napping and baths I can take an hour bath nap or it's like a mix of a shower bath take a nap <laughs> I mean I'm not <laughs> it is it's so, so nice a donut some wine <laughs> done um, but no, I mean, there were things and it's, it's taken me a long time to start listening to my body. And that's something that has just recently popped up in like the last two years. Um, really, um, much with my most recent diagnoses, um, because now it's much more physical than it ever has been in the past. And so if I want to get any other part of my body up to speed, I need to start with physical because mental and emotional health is physical health Mm -hmm. um and so i mean but i do love water i love being around water i when i stop and read and write that makes me feel better as opposed to watching trash television which i do love (laughs) i love the worst tv um and so trying to scale that back basically scaling back all the things that i know that i shouldn't do and you know at least doing the things that i know i should be doing um that's 
That's fun I'm working on. <laughs> Can I also just say that, like, I'm not up here, like, self-care goddess. Yeah. You don't know the last time I had a bath? Well, okay. Well, I had a bath recently. I bathed. I bathed my body. Right? But the last time I had, like, a real self-care bath, besides, like, this week, because I just had to do it, it was months. Because I just, there was so much going on, I could not find the time to do it or self-care had to look differently it had to look like something that's quick and on the go or something that fits more into what my life is doing at this moment and so self-care is not a static thing like oh well I must always be in a bath and I must always have seven candles and a glass of wine and like Bilal playing no <laughs> right like it's whatever I have the time and space for and so I I just want that to be known and said you know like self-care is going to look different for everyone but it's also going to look different for an individual because you're constantly moving through different phases and things that are going on and so i one of my self-care practices i buy a piece of really a bar of really expensive chocolate and when i get stressed i just take a bit off fuck everybody <laughs> right and so that is a self-care that i can do right now mm -hmm. and that's okay too and so it's just knowing the little things you can do to just bring yourself back into a space of, I I'm feel, care of exactly, yeah. exactly. And yeah. Well, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go, you. no, go. But I remember Lynn Price, bring up Lynn Price again, they shared with me an article that was like, self-care doesn't always look like bath bombs Hell and no. like yeah. champagne. Sometimes no. it's literally paying your bill. Yeah. That's a week late. Yeah. So it's, it's any kind of action you can take day to day, what you are dealing with, whatever context we're in or you're in, just doing one or however many, whatever, something that is just showing you that you're like, I got your back. Yeah. I'm here for you. I went yeah. grocery shopping for the first time That's alone huge. this week. Yeah. That's Thank you. And I took my own trash out. Oh, okay. Because okay. I live alone again. <laughs> but it makes you feel good about yourself. It does. Yeah. Like, accomplishing stuff. Yeah. 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 Stuffs. Like, yeah. I can do this on my own. Right. Look yeah. at me. Got it. Yeah. So. Thank you all so much for sharing. Thank you. A ton. I like learned a bunch too. Um, but I want to hear now that you all have like heard us talking about our work and all these other things that go into it, like and navigating the world. I want to hear a poem or two from everyone, or if it's not a poem, a thing, <laughs> something. Do you want to, Sharia? Do you want to start? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should have just gone to the poem. I shouldn't talk about it. I just gone to the poem. Um, routine. One, see poem. Two, a prescribed detailed course of action to be followed regularly as standard practice. Three, set of customary and often mechanically performed procedures or activities. Four, habitual, regular. Five, in accordance with an established procedure, six, having no special quality, ordinary. <coughs> Routine. Our black bodies are riding and driving. He is driving and she is riding and I am riding. He is driving and she is riding. They have skin like black butter, shiny and cool, like cake pity patty on bones. I am riding. We are riding and driving down I-65. We are riding and driving down I-65 south through Jefferson County 
We are black bodies riding and driving through Jefferson County, Alabama. He is driving her car with North Carolina tags. She is riding in her car and I am riding in her car with North Carolina tags down I-65. We are black bodies leaving Jefferson County. We are black bodies leaving Birmingham. We are traveling north on a road leaving South Birmingham with bodies like black cake, pity padded on bones. You must understand, he say. And we encounter mules on this road all the time. You must understand, he say. You fit the description of niggers we are looking for. He was driving, he is standing, he is telling. She was riding, she is sitting, she is talking. I was riding, I am watching, I am sphinxing. I am watching him and his police in the rear view. I am hearing our police, I am sphinxing. She and I are the focus of one police. He is the focus of one police. I am watching him and his police in the rear view. I am hearing our police, I am sphinxing, not speaking cause I ain't been spoken to. I remember the feeling of my body in the back seat. I remember the sun gilding the leaves on the trees. I watched his locks flutter in the fullness of the evening breeze. I remember turning back to the police as he peeked past her to me in the back seat because he ain't speaking to me. You must understand, he say, we encounter niggers on this road all the time. You must understand, they say, you fit the description of nigger we are looking for. He was standing, he was telling, he is driving. She was sitting, she was talking, she is riding. I was watching, I was sphinxing, I am riding. We are black bodies leaving Jefferson County. We are black bodies leaving Birmingham. We are traveling north on a road leaving south. Bodies like black cake, pity padded on bones. You want to do one from everybody? Or what do we want to do? Should um, I do if you want to read another, read another. Okay, yeah. okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I pulled another poem. Let me pull it, sorry. Okay. I do want to talk about this poem. Um, this poem is, uh, I want to talk about this poem because I think it's really important. Um, so I um, have been pregnant and decided to have an abortion. And um, I had the abortion in Alabama. It's a whole thing. <laughs> Alabama in Birmingham. And um, this poem is about that experience. And um, I will say I was lucky enough to have the women in the room that I did. And so here's the poem. Tell me about Thanksgiving. Her face is warm. She is perfect for this. The tender work of ripping mother from child, keeping the mind intact. I hear the suction, feel her hand on mine. She squeezes, you'll be fine. I feel her hand on mine, she, see, she squeezes strong. The moment they took you, all the pain rushed up and got caught in my teeth. My head is heavy, so much pain. I lean back, they find you. Actually, you know what? Sorry, can I start this over? Thank you. Tell me about Thanksgiving. Her face is warm, brown. She is perfect for this. The tender work of ripping mother from child, keeping the mind intact. I hear the suction, feel her hand on mine. She squeezes, you'll be fine. 
the moments. My hand, my head is heavy. So much pain, I lean back. They found you. All is white. No, no, baby. Come on back. I hear the suction. Feel her hand on mine. She squeezes. You'll be fine. The room is empty. I am naked. I feel for you, and you are not there. I want to cry. My body is still in shock. I get dressed for the first time alone. That's that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay. It's been a while since I've stretched my poetic muscles. Mm -hmm. I think I've used that metaphor a lot today. <laughs> it feels good. <laughs> um, this one, though, I did write a little while back. To God, who is so purple, who gives me nice purchases at CVS, like sapphire lipstick and caramels, who reminds me to include a dryer sheet, who grants me seat C on the airplane, who holds my pee a little too long, who tells me my belly is soft, who shows me a person unwrapping a big cookie who texts me skull emojis, who presents a deer's slick gut, who nudges me to buy Texas toast, who drinks bullet rye with me, who kneads, opens my thick, tight hamstrings, who emails me my password, who remembers centipedes make me gag, <laughs> who smells like gasoline and sounds like a soda can cracking open, who lights my candle, who waits for the yoga teacher to touch me? Who stains my fingers with beet juice? Thanks. <laughs> 29. I didn't write a poem for 28, and now my dad has lung cancer. Also, I don't wear blush, but when I do wear blush, it matches the color of my nipples. And also, street harassment, street harassment still stuns me. And also, I still nod when my mom tells me to pray. But I free bleed now. And I order sandwiches with french fries and mayo. And I make eye contact with you when you get street harassed. And at home, the absence of prayer is powdered donuts, ripe cherries, and that blister on my lip from my face upward toward the sun all day. Mm. Right. So I brought more than I needed because I worry. <laughs> so I'm going to read these two. Okay. Think of. When my breath vacates my chest and my skin settles into the earth, I want the world to take my exhale as champagne and a plastic magenta chalice from Target clearance. Yes. I want people to think of pigeons as doves. I want people to think of pigeons and doves. I want people to think of pigeons as doves because pigeons are doves. I want people to think of perception. I want people to think of the moon. 
A chunk of lemon glued to a punch-drunk sky moon. A spooky moon. Suede gray sky and marbled clouds with orb light clipped and blooming moon. Harvest moon. Bronze pregnant belly of the sky moon. Blood moon spilling out your mouth moon. I want people to think that I said what I meant and I meant what I said because I did. I want people to think that I bled dry for those I love, even though my tone was flat. I want people to think of cats and majestic and whiskers. I want people to think of the body's resilient failure, rising from bedspreads of fire and ash, screaming, I eat men like air, and then I did. <laughs> I want people to think of the warmth of sugar in the blood, how humors can be so sweet with disposition, soured with its exhaustion, the slow death of fatty tissue, blushed shins. I want people to think of the rigidity of backbone, softened by nothing, clenched knuckles like clenched teeth, perfect in its twisted flex. I want people to believe that I got at least one thing right. Thank you. Um, and this is uh, Ars Traumatica. <laughs> nice. Thanks. <laughs> Today, the light presses on my temples bright and clear and spreads across my forehead like a curse. I have made plans to leave so many homes. I have made plans to leave more homes than I have known. If hearts are homes, my left ventricle pumps a humidless spring evening. If hearts are homes, they are asleep by three in the morning. My therapist says, write about it. But when my skin rests against the paper, my teeth dissolve to the pastel of sidewalk chalk, a mouth of mess and tremble. Every sped of my skin is whitewash, white out. And yes, I am white and pink with the privilege of it. Today, I am a walking sob. His things are still in piles by the door. Out of view from the burial site, a digging crane sits in wait. Writers say, tell the truth. So let me tell you about my pain. The rosebush by my home blooms pink and red, and each petal is a lip I haven't kissed yet. The moon is in my periphery. There, they believe my pain is real. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to read the one poem, and um, it's one that Tracy put on Facebook. So um, it's um, this. This is a um, collection of poems that all have the same title, which is Case Study, and that is um, the, the case studies are. Um, imagined individuals who believe that they um, have a particular condition. And um, this is case study 17, and it's fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. Be in destroy mode. Know your bones are not a dancer's bones. 
archive as much as you like. Something will always be left out. In what you have sentenced, make the second or first or general vertebrae lock. The oldest reptilian part of the body folds. It has no software. Whenever the skull is hit, or that inner room you have sentenced over and over. The head, it feels like warming on one side, not your average nausea. The first stage of unclassic speech pain. In what you have sentenced, make the throat a hollow out space where a faucet should be. In what you have sentenced, the range map of uterus and all its options. It takes the right kind of mystery away. In what you've sentenced, the hand has an eluded edge. It locks, but you can't see how. In what you have sentenced, the jaw has a new basis. It can't say I. The voice, a bolt, though incomplete, senseless words in dream. Lips of shoulder, fleeting, malleable, the lower body organs are hung or adrift. In what you have sentenced, switch yourself on the subway. Bleed, then release. Then spread your legs. People let you do it. before we talked because I wanted to pick what felt most appropriate this after our talk. So I'm going to start with um, a section about Blue Cross Blue Shield. <laughs> to Tracy, for now there is an art to the resting and I'm fine face. For now, define that and which that is restrictive which leaves everything open to cable, to spells, to those voices saying, stop, you'll never be one to own anything. Who subsidizes your health care? Try to stay off the grid. Keep that medical history sparse enough for Blue Cross Blue Shield to take a chance with you. I'm fine. I'm fine. I've held this pose for years. Follow overhead advice. Lean in with private funding to me. Have you monetized your heart in company? Realize cut corn on the cob looks like snake skin. Choose a visceral response. I check for shards daily. They glitter like stardust. To Tracy, how do you define your pain? Check the correct box. I have explained to my doctor what hurts. Any sitting, especially the toilet, how cruel. Find neutral stance. Down dog doesn't hurt. This pain is unrelated to heartache. To me, I don't want to be fragile.
how can I be gentle? Your wound may be known, but you are not vulnerable to me. Linda asked, what will you write about when you're old? I said, whatever, they better listen. <laughs> they, as in everyone, bodies are not quiet. She looked like Madonna the other night in the I will not apologize for being me way. I intend to wear my wrinkles like young women wear chokers, bright and uneven. I feel like I'm kind of 
going all over the place. But for me, bringing in uh, just these little pieces of, of I consider kind of like pop art <laughs> into my poetry, I don't know, it finds a place all the time. Also very intimate. Yeah, intimacy. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorites. And noticing it on other people because I, I think a lot of my poetry is kind of uh, voyeurism and seeing these things on other people and how they integrate it and it's such a it it it, it uh, allows me to be intimate with another person. Uh, even you know, consent is <laughs> obviously a huge part of my work, but you know what I mean, just in terms of like <laughs> appreciating these things on other people. Um, so thinking about pop culture as a, a very active um, story or narrative that is that we take part in, that we are building, that we are receiving, that we are making a part of our life. Um, a lot of my research and creative work now has been thinking about meta narratives and um, how they impact um, black women. Um, and so that kind of research and focus um, comes out in plays and poetry, um, but I think is in conversation with popular culture. Um, so this is the larger story that is being created or presented or that we are partaking in. Um, and so how does that impact me and people who look like me has impact my grandmother how have we built ourselves and our belief systems um and the way we live in conversation with what is popular culture mm. right what is the way that is defined how are we identified in this story and then what does that mean to our own meta narratives and how we see ourselves and function in conversation um and in relationship to this larger story um so yeah, I think that dictionary, uh, my book of poetry, takes experiences that are personal um, and defining to me, and then, and then uh, I'm trying to find the right word, uh, and then not necessarily combats, but collaborates with popular language. The dictionary being a collection of how we use words right as a as a large group of people um and not the way that words are defined but anyway i have a whole dictionary soapbox so anyway <laughs> um and so that's how that work worked with that but then uh black maggie's which is a play series i've been working on um, and researching for really looks at survival and in the midst of pop culture and larger society how do black women survive um so in conversation short answer in conversation <laughs> so yeah thank you for that question mm -hmm. i don't necessarily write like directly about pop culture um when i think about pop culture in terms of women and bodies which i do write a lot about um I think of it more in terms of perception and countering that perception and celebrating in spite of that perception, mm -hmm. in short. Mm -hmm. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I like that question. Yeah. Yeah. Give us more questions. questions, please. <laughs> questions would be great, yeah. One more? Well, thank you all for coming and celebrating the chapbook. Uh, there's wine on the wine shelf. 